At the end of 2017, we had the Charlotte Family Weekend, and uh, it was so wonderful. We had so many visitors from five Canadian provinces and 32 states across the United States that uh, were represented here at the Charlotte Family Weekend. Uh, we had the live stream by uh, Mr. Weston. The sermon went out. It was viewed by more than 4,000 um, people around the world. So we thank God that we have that kind of technology that we can reach people in many different nations. And for those who are watching world news, we know that in 2017 we experienced uh, terrorism, uh, record natural disasters, and global tension. And we realize that we're getting closer to the kingdom of God. Every day is one day closer to the kingdom of God. And now that we're living in 2018, we can expect more Bible prophecies coming to pass, but of course we have to be watching and praying always. And I hope you saw Mr. Weston's program last week, uh, 2018, what's ahead for 2018 and beyond. And he gave four uh, predictions for 2018. And I'm going to give you a test on that next week, what, uh, what those four are. Uh, but very, very uh, significant, and I hope that you'll, if you didn't see that program, that you'll certainly watch it. We need to make sure that we are preparing for the kingdom of God. We heard that uh, actually in the opening prayer by Mr. Jake Hall. And in the world around us, around this time of year, people are making what they call New Year's resolutions. They want to make improvements in their lives. They want to make some changes in their lives. And, of course, those resolutions normally fail within a few weeks. Well, Calvin and Hobbes uh, had an interaction regarding New Year's resolutions. You know, uh, Hobbes is the uh, imaginary tiger, and and Calvin is the precocious young boy who has quite a a strange imagination from time to time. Well, Hobbes asked uh, Calvin, are you making any resolutions for the new year? And he angrily reacts to that. He says, resolutions? Me? Just what are you trying to, what are you implying? That I need to change? Well, buddy, as far as I'm concerned, I'm perfect the way I am. <laughs> so he doesn't need to make any changes. Uh, well, what about you? What about me? We know we all need to change. Uh, we have to, uh, Grow up in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as we heard in the announcements and in the sermonette. I wonder if Calvin, who heard the sermonette about rising before the hoary head, he might have a little more respect in his life. But God expects us to grow. He expects us to continually change and develop one year at a time. We turn to Romans, the 12th chapter. It gives us, our, in a sense, our marching orders for 2018 and beyond. Romans, the 12th chapter. The scripture with which we're very familiar, and we realize it is a command and instruction for all of us if we're going to make it into the kingdom. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
Now we know people give their lives in death for others, to help others. But he tells us we are to be a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we continually have to guard against the influences of the world, as we heard in the two split sermons last week by Mr. Smith and Mr. Nathan. The influences of the world are imposing on us continually, and we have to resist that. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So in 2018, what are your plans? God expects us to grow and to make positive changes. One simple resolution you might consider was emphasized by Admiral William H. McRaven. He wrote a book, and the subtitle was, Little Things Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. That's Admiral William H. McRaven. He was a Navy SEAL for 36 years. He wrote a book that became the number one New York Times bestseller. Wall Street Journal said, quote, should be read by every leader in America, a book to inspire your children and grandchildren to become everything that they can. The Wall Street Journal. McRaven describes the incredible hardships he endured in his training as a Navy SEAL, because not everyone makes it through that training. And he gave a number one task. He said, well, let me just read uh, part of what... Uh, he wrote there, he said, uh, he describes the amazing hardships of a Navy SEAL training. It is six months of being constantly harassed by professionally trained warriors who seek to find the weak of mind and body and to eliminate from them ever becoming, and eliminate them from ever becoming a Navy SEAL. But the training also seeks to find those students who can lead in an environment of constant stress, chaos, failure, and hardships. To me, basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. So here are the ten lessons I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. And he begins to give the background for this first major instruction and value. Every morning in basic SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up at my barracks room, and the first thing they would inspect was your bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. I just mentioned, it just popped in my mind when you read about the people going to the empty tomb of Jesus. And what did they find? Folded clothing. He continues, it was a simple task, uh, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in the light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough battle-hardened seals, 
But the wisdom of the simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. By the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that little things in life matter. The title of the book is Make Your Bed. He continues, if you can't do the little things right, you will never do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, that you made, and a made bed that gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. So a very popular book and one uh, written by a Navy SEAL who is quite a warrior and says of the ten basic things you should do to be a success in life and to change the world, uh, number one is to make your bed. Well, I learned that in the Army myself, and uh, since then that would be December of 59 or January of 1960. Uh, so that would be 57 years ago that I've uh, been making my bed and, of course, uh, helping my wife make the bed too. Uh, but she's normally doing other things, and I normally make the bed uh, every morning. One statistic is 40% of Americans do not make their beds. So are, are you one of the 40%? So... That's just an indicator of what someone can do. Uh, this Navy SEAL found that it was good for all the Navy SEALs and something that he's found would be beneficial in changing one's life. We heard in the announcements about Dr. Douglas Rennell's message in the world ahead uh, today, plans and priorities. Dr. Rennell wrote, as you contemplate the year ahead, what plans do you have and what goals can you set for yourself to prepare for a more effective instrument in God's hands? Jesus has admonished his disciples to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33. And in the churches I pastored, I would normally tell the brethren, if there's one scripture I want you to learn, it's Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The title for the sermon today is Prepare for the Kingdom. Prepare for the Kingdom. Subtitle, Because You Are Heirs of the Kingdom. So how can we prepare for the kingdom? Today's sermon will discuss four major strategies. One, seek the kingdom. Two, visualize the kingdom. Three, prepare for the kingdom, and four, inherit the kingdom. So we'll discuss those four areas, but first let me ask some challenging questions. Uh, God's people examine themselves every year before the Passover, and of course we should do that continually in any case. So if you feel like you aren't succeeding in life, will you accomplish a major breakthrough or a life-changing experience in 2018? Will you add to your personality more godly traits in 2018? Will you change some behaviors and attitudes and habits for good? 
If you're lazy, will you drive yourself to produce with more energy? And if you're a workaholic, will you spend more time with your family? Will you replace anger with patience and grace? Will you develop a homemaking, artistic, musical, and professional skills in 2018 and beyond? Will you fully apply the seven laws of success if you've been falling short? So keep these questions in mind as we consider the first major point, which is, number one, seek the kingdom. We know that we must actively seek the kingdom. So let's read it in our own Bibles. We've said it several times and quoted it, but it's good to just read it out of your own Bible as well because the context, Jesus is saying, Oh, you of little faith. And, of course, God expects us to exercise Christ's faith and our own faith as well. Matthew 6 and verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So there must be a focus. There must be a goal. At the Feast of Tabernacles each year, we get a vision of the kingdom. And we need to internalize that vision and desire the kingdom. Who in the Bible desired the kingdom or is looking forward to the kingdom? Take a look at this. It might surprise you. Uh, Mark, the 15th chapter. After Joseph of Arimathea had begged Pilate for the body of Jesus, can you imagine Uh, the awesome responsibility he had to take the Messiah's body and put it into his own tomb. And he had the courage to uh, take that action. Mark 15, verse 42. Now, when evening had come, because it was a preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, He was waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And, of course, put him in his own tomb, as it says later in verse 46. But Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for the kingdom of God. He desired the kingdom of God. How much do you desire the kingdom of God? How many times a day? Uh, Do you pray your kingdom come because you see the abominations and the oppression and the needs of the world for the kingdom to come? Turn to Romans, the 8th chapter. Romans, the 8th chapter. Not only do we desire the kingdom, but the whole creation is waiting for the kingdom. Romans, the 8th chapter, and start with uh, verse 18. We all have our pains and uh, challenges. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed into, into us. We will be glorified beings with uh, immortal life. 
Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Think about that. The creation is waiting for you and me, all of God's people, the saints. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. We realize even as uh, Mr. Wesson pointed out in the telecast that, uh, quoting from, I believe it was uh, Hosea or Amos, or that the fish, all the fish in the sea will die. There won't be a living thing remaining in the sea in the future. And we know the pollution of the air and waters and food, the environment. The old creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption or the sonship, as you should read, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So the whole creation is waiting for us. And we eagerly are waiting for the sonship. The creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. We'll turn back to... uh, Matthew, the fifth chapter, Matthew 5. So we are going to be inheritors of the kingdom, but right now we are heirs. That is, we are waiting for our inheritance. We're preparing for our inheritance. Matthew, the fifth chapter. You're all familiar with the the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 and verse 3. What does God promise us? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not the kingdom in heaven, but the kingdom of heaven. So God has promised us a kingdom. We're thankful for that promise. Then Matthew 5, of course, in verse 10. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, the promise of our inheritance. So do you realize that God has reserved an awesome inheritance for you and for me? About 50 years ago, my wife's uncle died and left her an inheritance inheritance of about $2,000. We were able to buy some uh, furniture with that inheritance. But let me ask you, how many of you have ever received an inheritance of support. See your hands. So, well, it's hard to see, but it uh, looks like about 49% of you have received an inheritance. Of course, this inheritance is being so much more valuable. Let's take a look at Matthew, the 25th chapter. You know, it just was a joy for us because it was unexpected in one way to get that inheritance. But God gives us an awesome inheritance. Matthew, the 25th chapter. 
starting with verse 31. Matthew 25 and uh, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and all, and, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. If you haven't got marked in your Bible, be sure to mark that in your Bible. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Who is going to inherit the kingdom? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous said, When did we see you in that? He said, Inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, the end of verse 40, you did it unto me. So God has promised us, the kingdom. He says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. How would you describe the kingdom? What is it like? And what are the keys to ensure your faithfulness as an heir to the kingdom? We certainly need to desire the kingdom. And Matthew, the 25th chapter, just back a page, gives us that wake-up call, if you will, and a motivation to desire the kingdom. And I think back when I first heard the World Tomorrow program with uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and in my background, religious background, I never heard that Jesus Christ was coming back to this earth. And all I could see was doom and gloom on the horizon with no hope for the future. And yet when I heard through the World Tomorrow program and In John 14, where Jesus said, I will come again, that gave me hope. It gave me a change in life. It gave me confidence and and optimism for the future. Chapter 25, Matthew. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them are wise, five foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, and while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And we've been hearing that warning, that trumpet blast, that announcement, that proclamation, go out to meet him. Yes, prepare for the kingdom, prepare for the wedding with Jesus Christ. He's coming, and he's coming soon. We don't set dates, but we realize we need to have a sense of urgency. The very first Tomorrow's World Ahead magazine, uh, that was Tomorrow's World magazine, that Dr. Meredith uh, organized, the cover article was the feature article by Dr. Meredith, was titled, Seven Reasons Why Christ Must Return. That was the May-June 1999 Tomorrow's World magazine and also repeated in the 2008 uh, May-June Tomorrow's World magazine. 
If you were to write down a list of why God's kingdom needs to come, can you right off the top of your head right now even name one or two or three or five or seven reasons why Christ needs to come? Well, he needs to come to put away Satan and his, and his demons. He needs to come so that the saints can be resurrected. He needs to come to put away all the violence and crime and oppression in the world and set up the new government. He needs to come to set up a new educational system so people can un- unlearn all the false heresies, the false ideas and, and the heresies they've learned and learn the new way of life. The true way of life. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, he said in John 8.31. So we need John 8.32. Dr. Meredith listed these seven reasons. One, man's capacity for cosmocide. The end, the earth is going to end with the total death for every living thing, unless Christ intervenes. Reason number one, man's capacity for cosmocide. Number two, unprecedented drought and famine. Three, horrifying disease epidemics. Four, massive earthquakes, hurricanes, and weather upheavals. Five, escalating sorrow and terror. Six, man's last hope for peace has failed, referring to man's governments. Legion, reason number seven, Jesus has promised to return. Jesus promised to return. So those are seven reasons why Christ must return. I hope you have your in-depth reason and you're crying out eagerly for the kingdom to come. And of course we pray that in Matthew 6 verse 10, uh, your kingdom come. And I hope I do that, it seems to me, I, I'm praying that at least once a day, if not several times a day, uh, reading the newspapers, watching the world news on television, or, or however, realize, yes, we need to stop all wars. And, of course, Psalm 149 says, put those despots in chains. This honor has all the saints to put those criminals away so they're no longer terrifying, abusing, and killing people. Let's turn to uh, Acts, the third chapter. That's the third chapter. So Christ needs to come back to heal the, the lame, the blind, and the deaf, and that's in Isaiah 35. But here in Acts 3, we find the very principal uh, verse. Mr. Armstrong used to call it the pivotal uh, verse in the Bible. Acts 3. And uh, we'll start with verse 19, however. Repent, therefore. And be converted that your sins may be blotted out so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Yes, the world needs the times of refreshing. And that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken of by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Uh, That verse 21 is the pivotal verse uh, Mr. Armstrong referred to. The restoration of all things. What Restoring what? Restoring God's government to the earth particularly. So we have to look forward to that. And of course we know that we want God's kingdom to come because we're sighing and crying for the abominations that are being committed. And we need to be careful not to be hardened 
with the influence of sin around us, and we had that warning for the two split sermons last week. Ezekiel 9 and verse 4 says, Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. And I hope we're doing that, realizing that we cannot compromise with the ways of this world. But we need to live God's way of life, live by every word of God that proceeds out of the mouth of God as well. So key number one in preparing for the kingdom is to seek the kingdom. Key number two is visualize the kingdom. We do this at the Feast of Tabernacles every year, but we need to keep that vision always in mind. Turn to Matthew, uh, the 17th chapter. Matthew 17. At the the previous uh, verse, that is Matthew 16, verse 28, Jesus tells his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so he takes uh, Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain, and he was transfigured, verse 2, before them. Matthew 17, verse 2. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah uh, appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And of course, the bright uh, cloud came over and heard a voice saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Verse 7, But Jesus came to them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And so we know that Moses and Elijah are going to be very prominent in the government of God, in the coming kingdom of God. He gave Peter, James, and John a vision of the kingdom of God and the coming of Jesus Christ. And the feature of that was Moses and Elijah. So they will have prominent responsibilities in the coming kingdom. Dr. Meredith always wants us to have that vision and to keep our eyes on what he called the big picture. And so, in his editorial, The Living Church News, September-October 2004, titled The Big Picture, Dr. Meredith wrote, An enduring lesson I have learned throughout my 55 years in God's work is the need to focus on the big picture. So many of the brethren and even fellow ministers and evangelists whom I have loved and with whom I have worked over the years have fallen away or drifted into apostasy because they failed to focus on the truly major things. Many had their feelings hurt over comparatively little things. Others turned aside or confused by rather trivial arguments and ideas. This is disastrous. It is vital that all of you, dear brethren, learn to see the truly big picture in the truths and in the events that God is orchestrating here on earth today. 
The big picture should motivate us to overcome, to grow, and to make godly changes in our attitudes, habits, and character. So we thank God for Dr. Meredith and his legacy and all that he taught us and uh, taught me personally over all the years that I became acquainted for his writings when I first became acquainted with his writings in uh, September, October of uh, 1960 in the Plain Truth magazine when he had a series on the Ten Commandments. Jonathan Swift uh, wrote uh, this particular quotable quote. Vision is the art of seeing the invisible. In fact, we have that poster in the hallway uh, near our boardroom in the uh, headquarters building. Vision is the art of seeing the invisible. Well, that's not quite exactly right because vision is the understanding of God's revelation. He, he gives us the vision. It's not just an art. It's a fact, and it's a revelation from God. You know Proverbs 29:18. I won't turn there, but where there is no revelation, or in the King James, where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Yes, when God's people have revelation, they know God's way of life, they know the purpose of life, they know the coming kingdom, they're going to stay on the right track, or at least they should stay on the right track. As we have a vision for the kingdom, just what is the kingdom? Some people think it's uh, the kingdom is in your heart or the kingdom is the church. Mr. Wally Smith gave a telecast here uh, recently called The Mystery of the Kingdom of God, and he went over those four elements of a kingdom. You have territory, subject, laws, and rulers. And we'll discuss that briefly here in a moment. But... And we saw, and in the sermonette, we actually had a reference, of course, to the government of God as well. Mr. Armstrong would say, and I heard him on an old radio program here recently, the kingdom of God is the government of God. And secondarily, it's the family of God. He said, well, it could also be stated, the kingdom of God is the family of God, and secondarily, the government of God. So it's the royal family into which all of us can be born. But it's also a wonderful divine government. Let's turn to Ephesians, the third chapter. Ephesians, the third chapter. Again, one of the verses that gives us insight into the whole plan of God, which our former association has rejected, saying God is not a family. But that is the, what is the truth. God is a father. He has a son. What do you call that? That's a family. And so here in Ephesians, the third chapter, we find that fact uh, stated here in verse 14, Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, the uh, Greek is patria, and some try to translate it household to do away with the organic interaction of father and son and being in a family with uh, brothers and sisters. But God is the father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is made. That's what the kingdom is. And let's reinforce the government side of it in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. You're all familiar with that. Some of you have... Uh, 
seen and heard the uh, Handel's Messiah, attended some of those concerts, which this is sung, Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, how many people in the world actually focus on the scripture? They, they sing it, but do they understand what they're singing? The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. And he's going to be sitting on a throne. He's on his father's throne now in heaven upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. The world lacks judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the eternal of hosts will perform this. But we thank God for the kingdom that is a family and is a government and has those four elements, a ruler, a kingdom has a ruler, in this case the king of kings, Jesus Christ, and the saints ruling with him as kings and priests. It has a territory. The territory to begin with is planet earth. As it says in Isaiah 11 and verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we know that there are nations on the earth. Revelation 2.26, the reward there is going to be a ruler over nations. And the nations are here on earth in Revelation 5.10 as well. Let's turn to Revelation 5.9. It's one of our key promises, an awesome truth for our destiny. Revelation 5 and verse 9. We often emphasize verse 10, but verse 9 is so powerful in its meaning and application as well. And they sang a new song saying, Revelation 5 verse 9, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. So we thank God that he is, that Jesus is a lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the name lamb of God or the word lamb is used in the book of Revelation over 20 times. Christ's sacrifice will never be forgotten. And redeemed us to God by your blood. But notice this. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So we look around the world today and we realize we have brethren in Australasia. There are brethren in Europe and Australia, Africa, South America, North America, uh, all around the world. Speak various languages. He said, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. How many nations are there in the world today? Currently, there are 193 member states in the United Nations. Uh, but that's not all the nations and countries or groups or tribes or people in the world. Vatican City and Palestine aren't members but are permanent observers. 
There, there are independent countries that aren't a part of the UN, such as uh, Taiwan, Kosovo, and Somaliland. And the Kurds also are a group of people, but are not a nation because they're scattered over uh, different uh, different nations: Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and Syria. And there are 30 million of them as an ethnic group. So God means what he says when he says every people, tribe, and nation, and language or tongue. How many languages are there? The Washington Post cites uh, Ethnologue, Languages of the World, 18th edition, which asserts there are 7,102 living languages 2,301 in Asia, 2,138 in Africa, 1,313 in the Pacific, 1,064 in the Americas, 286 in Europe. So God is calling people out of every tongue, language, tribe, people, and nation. We need to keep that in mind because our brothers and sisters in Christ are all over the world and God is going to be calling even more as time goes on, to become kings and priests in the first resurrection. So when we think about the kingdom of God, there are territory that's going to be planet Earth to begin with, the rulers, Christ, the kings and the priests, the saints with him, and then there are subjects, the nations, that will be subject to it. And we saw that in Zechariah 14, that all nations will be represented going up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, after Christ returns. And we know that the laws will be instituted because Micah, the fourth chapter, and Isaiah 2 say all nations shall go up to Jerusalem to learn the way of God. The law shall go forth from Zion and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. So all the nations will know what the kingdom is. So we need to visualize the kingdom and realize who is going to be in the kingdom. Well, we know... Hebrews, the 11th chapter, if you want to briefly review this. Who's going to be in the kingdom? We visualize the kingdom looking forward to those who will be in the kingdom. Of course, this list several <clears throat> there in the kingdom. But notice Hebrews 11, verse 13. Uh, These all died in faith, not having received the promises but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And uh, you realize verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. But it said back in verse 14, But those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16, Hebrews 11. But now they desire better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We might take a quick look at Romans, the fourth chapter. So we know that the saints mentioned in Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, will be... in the same resurrection, the first general resurrection. But uh, 
Romans, the fourth chapter, shows about uh, Abraham, if I can find that particular. Oh, here it is, Romans, the fourth chapter. Verse 13, for the promise that he would be heir of the world, speaking of Abraham, was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So Abraham is named prominently as heir of the world. And, of course, Jesus told the Sadducees and Pharisees, don't you know that God is God of the living, not of the dead? He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He never said he was the God of David or the God of Paul in those same words. So we realize just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be very prominent in the government and the kingdom of God, as long as well as Moses and Elijah. So we have that vision of the coming kingdom of God, and I hope that you uh, have, of course, you all have your booklet, The World Ahead, uh, What Will It Be Like? And, uh, well, all the headings of teachers of joy, respect for teachers, agriculture and health, restore true Christianity, uh, the way to blessings. Israel was blessed under God's government. So I hope that you read this, and, of course, at the Feast of Tabernacles, a good time to review it as well. We know that King David will be uh, king over all the 12 tribes of Israel. We know that the apostles, each one will be over one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, that's mentioned in Matthew 19, verses 27 through 30. I won't turn there, but we have a glimpse already of what the kingdom of God is going to be like, what its government is going to be like, its whole educational system is going to be like, which we reviewed at the Feast of Tabernacles. But we realize as we have a vision of the kingdom, that ultimately part of that vision includes the inheritance of the new Jerusalem. So let's turn back there briefly to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. We've had a whole sermon on it, so I won't spend too much time here, but it's, you, you want to always focus on the big picture and understand, yes, this is what we're looking forward to. Revelation 21, let's start with 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. This is after the millennium and after the white throne judgment. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So who is this? Bride. The bride is the bride of Christ. All those who were born into the kingdom of God at the first resurrection. Of course, that hasn't happened yet. We're looking forward to it. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The whole creation groans for the kingdom of God and the liberty of the sons of God. Our booklet, The Revelation Unveiled, written by Mr. John O'Gwen, 
writes on page 44. Near the end of the book of Revelation, John describes the glory of this great city with its 12 foundations and 12 gates. The streets are made of gold and the gates are each made of a single pearl. There is brilliant color and light pervading everywhere because of the presence of the Father in Christ. Those who are part of Christ's bride will actually dwell in the New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. While those who come later during the millennium and great right throne judgment will inhabit the remainder of the new earth, the rest of God's glorified family, the nations of those who are saved, will have unfettered access to the Father and Christ as the gates of the city will remain open by day and there will be no night there. Verses 23 through 26. They will have complete access to the tree of life that grows in the city and to the river of water of life. So we look forward to the new Jerusalem. Those who will be in the first resurrection will actually will dwell in the new Jerusalem, the Lamb's wife as it's called. We have a sermon, uh, Jerusalem and your future. That was a must play. Um, I think that was, no, I'm not sure what the number of that uh, sermon is, but you can uh, check that on our website. Uh, Jerusalem and your future. So number two, brethren, we have so much revelation in God's word of the millennial chapters of Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 35, um, Micah the fourth chapter, and, and Zechariah the 14th chapter. We have a vision of tomorrow's world, of the coming kingdom of God. So number two, visualize the kingdom. Number three, prepare for the kingdom. Revelation 19th chapter and verse 7. Revelation 19, 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has prepared herself. She's prepared for the kingdom. His wife has made herself ready. That's what we're all doing, brethren. Week after week, we... Hear from God's word, exhortations. The bridegroom is coming. Go you out to meet him. Prepare for the coming kingdom. And we know we have to watch because we know we don't know the day or the hour in which he's coming, but we certainly can know the general season of his coming if we're watching and praying. And, of course, again, I mentioned Dr. Uh, Mr. Wesson's program on what's ahead for 2018 and beyond. But we have to persevere. Revelation, the third chapter, says that Philadelphians are, who are preparing for the kingdom are those who persevere. Revelation 3 and verse 10. Revelation 3 and verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we have a command to persevere. There's a book that I became acquainted with here recently called Grit, G-R-I-T, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance by Angela Duckworth. She writes, Why do naturally talented people frequently fail to reach their potential, while other far less gifted individuals go on to achieve amazing things? The secret to outstanding achievement is not talent, but a passionate persistence. So what is grit? According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, grit in the context of behavior is defined as firmness of character, indomitable indomitable spirit. Duckworth, in her book, defines grit as perseverance and passion for long-term goals. Perseverance and passion for long-term goals. And actually, if you go on uh, the Internet and just write in a grit scale, you can take this inventory and you'll find out just how strong your grit quality is. And, uh, and it was pretty obvious what, what the lessons, what you, what you should answer or not answer. But if you're honest with yourself, uh, you can find out what your grit scale. Mine was uh, 4.4 on a scale of 5. I could have manipulated it up to 5, but I, I knew better. So you could take your own grit scale. You know, I just wonder, uh, are Southerners more successful in life because they have more grit? They eat grits every morning for breakfast. So maybe they have more grit. There was a movie actually back 1969 uh, called True Grit, uh, featured John Wayne. I'm not recommending that, but nonetheless, <laughs> the sixth law of success is perseverance or stick to it, isn't it? So we need that. Let's turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, Hebrews 12. How much perseverance and passion for long-term goals do you have? Do you have grit? Do you have True grit, not the true grit of John Wayne, but the grit that Hebrews, the 12th chapter, talks about and the perseverance that Christ talked about. Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we are in a race, and we need to run that race with patience, as it is in the King James, or endurance in the New King James Version. And those of us who, uh, well, I used to jog a long time ago. We used to jog in Big Sandy, the Big Sandy faculty. For six weeks we jogged. Uh, 3.9 miles, I think it was, twice, uh, once a week, and uh, 1.9 miles five days a week. And, uh, and you know, you just get this rhythm going, you know, one, two, three, one, two, three, as you're breathing, you just keep going on and going on. And, uh, of course, some of you may have run a, 
a marathon or been in a triathlon. Some of our, our brethren have actually run an Ironman tri- triathlon. And you just need to run that patient race with patience. We have uh, sermon number 925, uh, Philadelphian Perseverance. You might refer to sermon 925, Philadelphian Perseverance. These are on our website, lcg.org. You can just put in the search bar, you know, Persevering, the Philadelphia per- Perseverance or whatever the title of the sermon is you're searching. The key is consistent effort. Do you make your bed every morning? (laughs) Uh, Do you pray every morning? Do you read the Bible every day? Are you setting godly priorities? And we heard that from Dr. Winnell's commentary in the world ahead. We read in Revelation 3 and verse 10, Because you have kept my command to persevere. He's going to keep us from the great tribulation. Dr. O'Neill writes in the world ahead, plans and priorities, quote, identify an area of your life that you want to change and go to work on it. What do you want to change? Will you overcome more of your human nature? We know we need to overcome Satan, self, and society. We need to resist the temptations, and I didn't have the title of the sermons, but Last week, we heard about the uh, world's influence from Mr. Wallace Smith. That sermon was Processing Data in a Fake World. And Mr. Nathan's Sex in the World of the Patriarchs, Lessons for Today. So will you grow in godly character? If you claim God's promises, you will grow in godly character this year and beyond. What are some of your favorite promises that will help you persevere? One I like, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So God is training us as kings and priests. And if we are growing in the grace and knowledge, we are doing it because we are focusing on the commission and the mission that Christ has given us. I know you're all familiar, and we keep emphasizing the sevenfold commission that Dr. Meredith has given us, the sevenfold commission of the living church of God. And if you don't have uh, one of these folders or posters, uh, just go to uh, uh, mail processing and, and uh, obtain one for yourself so you, so you can keep your goal always in mind. Uh, Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. So keep these missions in mind. Some of the other churches of God say, oh, we're, our job is to prepare the bride. But how are they preparing the bride? The main way you prepare the bride is doing what the groom wants you to do, and that's do the work of God, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And as he says, to give the Ezekiel warning, as Mr. Weston has been emphasizing to feed the flock and build all our members to the stature of Jesus Christ as we can. Yes, we are preparing the bride. Be examples to the church of God and to the world of Christ's way of life. Learn and practice servant leadership in all our dealings with others. Restore apostolic original Christianity and all that this implies. Build an atmosphere of radiant faith within God's church. 
So we need to keep the command to persevere. We need to seek the kingdom of God with all our heart. We need to overcome with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need the faith of Christ to overcome. We need to prepare for the kingdom by growing, overcoming, and becoming more like Christ. That's what my wife said when I asked her about how do you prepare for the kingdom. That's what she told me at breakfast this morning. We need to grow and overcome and become more like Christ. We need to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. So number three, then, in seeking and preparing for the kingdom of God is prepare for the kingdom of God. And, of course, there are many other strategies that you hear in sermons every week and in all of our literature. Prepare for the kingdom of God. Number four is inherit the kingdom. Well, we aren't inheriting it now, but we need to qualify, and God will qualify us for the inheritance if we persevere to the end, if we're letting Christ live his life in us. And as Jesus said in Matthew 25, which we read already in verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom for you prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. We look forward to inherit the kingdom. But what else will we inherit? I won't turn there because you're familiar with it. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So we inherit the kingdom, we inherit the earth. Turn to Matthew, the 19th chapter, and we'll see another of our inheritance listed. Matthew 19 and verse 29. We inherit the kingdom, we inherit the earth, and what else? Matthew 20, Matthew 19 and verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive hundredfold and inherit eternal life. People have searched the legends of Ponce de Leon, of course, trying to find the the uh, waters of life in Florida and other places, other mythical pursuits of eternal life. But God says he's going to give us eternal life. We can inherit eternal life. What else? Hebrews, the first chapter. Now, this is almost like uh, searching for gold treasure. When you look at the scriptures and all the promises that God gives us, Hebrews, first chapter, we will inherit the kingdom, we'll inherit the earth, we'll inherit eternal life. Hebrews 1 and verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. 
And the Protestant world and the religious world doesn't know what salvation is. Real salvation is being born into the kingdom of God at the resurrection when Christ returns as immortalized, glorified children of God born at the resurrection. We shall inherit salvation. Turn to Hebrews, the sixth chapter. How do we inherit the promises? We have a responsibility here in Hebrews 6 and verse 11. Hebrews 6, verse 11. And we desire that each of one of you should show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Oh, you're going to inherit the promises. We already read in Hebrews 11:13 that they all died in faith, not having received the promises. But if we, through faith and patience, exercise that faith and patience, we inherit the promises. First Peter, the third chapter, another treasure that God is going to uh, give us. Another description of that inheritance, First Peter, the third chapter, First Peter three, and verse eight. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So if we are loving one another as we should, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, you will inherit a blessing. We look uh, over here at uh, 1 Peter 1 and verse uh, 3. So we see we're going to inherit the kingdom, inherit the earth, eternal life, salvation, the promises, and a blessing. And what does God say about that inheritance? First Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God of, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1, verse 4, to an inheritance. And how does he describe that inheritance? Incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So God has that inheritance. We are heirs of the kingdom. We are not yet inheritors. When will we inherit that? Well, we inherit that in the kingdom of God. When Jesus Christ comes back, and we know about that, the seventh trumpet, as it says in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, verse 50 through 52, and also 1 Thessalonians 4, we inherit the kingdom at the return of Jesus Christ. But notice this warning in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. 1 Corinthians 6. And we need to take warnings, take them seriously, 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, verse 9. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We've been hearing that warning. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a warning for all of us. But those who were sinning in those perverse ways still can be forgiven. And Corinth was quite a metropolis of perversion. And yet, this whole list of perverse sins and those who committed them, some of them were forgiven. Verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So we thank God that we can be forgiving, but we must not be practicing sinners. Now there's one more major inheritance God gives us. Let's turn to Hebrews, the second chapter. God has promised us such awesome, wonderful blessings and awesome inheritance but even goes further than what we've already described. In Hebrews, the second chapter. Hebrews 2. And, of course, he's quoting in part here from Psalm 8, when King David was saying. So Hebrews 2 and verse 5. For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son today, I've begotten you, and again... I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. So that's Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn of many brethren. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. And ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, notice that God is going to give Christ, or has already given Christ, the promise of ruling the whole earth, and we're looking forward to that time that he's come. He's the firstborn of many brethren. But chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Verse 6 and 7 is quoting from Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angel, crowned him with glory and honor, set him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. Verse 8, for in that he put all in subjection under him. And the word all here in the Greek is ta panta, meaning the all. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. 
And all things in the last part there of verse 8 is again uh, ta panta, meaning the all. What does that mean? Dr. Meredith explains that in the booklet, Your Ultimate Destiny. He writes, the Greek word here used for all things may be correctly understood as, quote, the entire universe. In fact, in the Weymouth translation, Hebrews 2.8 is translated for the subjecting of the universe to man. Immediately after that, Paul wrote, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, Hebrews 2.8. Dr. Meredith writes, notice that nothing is excluded from being under man's dominion, but it is not yet accomplishment. Accomplished. Commenting on these verses, Erdman's critical and experimental commentary states, quote, As no limitation occurs in the scripture, the, quote, all things, end of quote, must include heavenly as well as earthly things. That's volume 6, 1948, pages 530 to 531. That's from Dr. Meredith's booklet on your ultimate destiny. So God wants to give us the inheritance not only of the earth, but of the universe. How many galaxies are in the universe? It used to be said there were 100 billion galaxies, and each of those galaxies had 100 billion stars. Some years ago, that was upgraded by NASA to 200 billion galaxies in the universe. But in the past two or three years, the Hubble telescope is focused on black spaces in, in space, and they found myriads and myriads and myriads of more galaxies. So that uh, NASA had to say, well, let's read this, this led to the observable universe continued about 200 billion galaxies in the past. The new research shows that this estimate is at least 10 times too Low. So where in the past it used to be 200 billion galaxies, now it is at least 2 trillion galaxies. And you know how fast they are going out in space? The book on uh, God and the Astronomers by William Jastrow uh, points a time when uh, Hubble out in Pasadena and uh, Milton Humason, uh, we're seeing some of the plates from uh, the, uh, the telescopes there in Pasadena. Milton Humason, along with Edwin Hubble, was able to demonstrate that some galaxies were moving out into space at 100 million miles per hour. And Mr. Wallace Smith has told me there that some of the other uh, astronomers more recently have found... Uh, galaxies or asteroids going at over 200 million miles per hour. Where are they going? Will we ever be able to catch up with them? Remember that God tells us Jesus prayed to his Father in John 17 that they might be one as we are one. We will be able, when we're born into the kingdom, to live in a different dimension that surpasses and transcends time and space. 
You'll be able to go to the end of the universe at the speed of thought. It's probably too awe-inspiring for us to really grasp and understand what God has planned for us. But God loves his children, and the whole creation is waiting for us to be born into his kingdom, as we read in Romans 8.22. So in 2018, we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as we heard from Mr. Weston and Dr. Warneo. We need to pray for life-changing, positive experiences to prepare for the kingdom. We're heirs of the kingdom and we're joint heirs with Christ, as it tells us in Romans 8.17, and we will inherit the earth, eternal life, salvation, the promises, and all things, the universe. So, brethren, may we prepare with all our heart. May we persevere. Remember what Christ said to his faithful servants. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We must honor our inheritance. We must desire and seek it wholeheartedly. Luke 12, verse 31. Let's turn there. Luke 12, verse 31. In closing, God is such a loving Father and it seems that what he's promised us is, can be overwhelming at times, but we have to be bold in the faith, need to believe the promises, claim those promises, and visualize the kingdom. Luke, the 12th chapter, and verse 31. Luke 12, and verse 31. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. Visualize the kingdom. Prepare for the kingdom. And inherit the kingdom. Let's rejoice in our calling. Let's be faithful in our calling. Let's first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness above all else in life. Let's prepare for the kingdom and the return of our Savior Jesus Christ. And thank God that we are heirs of the kingdom.